I'm Alice Thornycroft and this is Brilliant Minds in Conversation, the podcast series where we untap the insights and stories of individuals who've performed at the very top of their careers. I feel very blessed in my job as I get the opportunity to meet and work with many inspirational people. And one of those people is my business partner and life partner, Harvey Thornycroft. I specifically asked Harvey to be involved in the series because he knows our brilliant minds personally. He's a former professional sportsman himself and most importantly, has an unbelievable memory and loves to tell stories. So before I introduce our guest, here's a brief account of how we got to know him. Harvey, without revealing who it is, how did you first come to meet our guest? I think it was around 2004, 2005. This particular individual had just completed an unbelievable task, which we'll reveal later, and was looking to transition, thinking about whether he'd push on to the next major task. And we ran an event at Brockett Hall uh, with Dr. Dorian Dugmore and Casper Berry. It was called Getting the Edge. And he wanted somewhere to change after he'd done the event and he went back to my room, which I hadn't got in, and Brockett Hall's a lovely place. And I came in with my room key, he'd already let himself in, and laying on the bed in a pair of boxer shorts, having done a number two in the toilet, was James Cracknell. And it was like going back to being in a rugby tour. <laughs> and of course, I've just revealed who it is. <laughs> That's fine. It was it was always going to be tricky for you not to say. And uh, and what was James doing for for you at the time in terms of the event? Well, we needed someone who could bring to life an old analogy that Dr. Frank Dick used, which was the three lane highway, where someone who was performing at a high level in his career lane, uh, but also managing his family and friends in his middle lane and his own personal well-being in his inside lane and of course if any of those lanes cross as Frank said they can affect the way you perform so we wanted someone who was trying to manage all of those different lanes and it was just amazing because of the things he was doing at that particular point in time. I'm really going to push you in your memory banks here Harvey but what do you think were the biggest lessons that James taught that business audience that day because it was quite a unique event actually at the time wasn't it yeah I mean we heralded people like James but what you hadn't realized uh, was that in order to perform at that level it affected other things and as a result it was very very difficult for him to keep his personal well-being going after the Olympics um, he was doing all sorts of different challenges and in order to make sure he wasn't taking away from the kids uh, with his wife Beverly, he was basically going out a ridiculous point in time to Richmond Park, dragging tires around Richmond Park, and not trying to compromise on family time. And in order to be James Cracknell or anyone who has performed at that level, it was really, really tough to manage. So we needed someone to explain to these CEOs that were, quite frankly, at this particular point in time, this is before all the markets imploded. Somebody can explain it's okay not to be able to manage everything. It's tough to manage things and, and give us some tips that would allow us to perform better. And it was called getting the edge. So we were looking at emotional, mental, physical and purpose in terms of all of those different elements and how you have to manage them all. They're all interdependent of each other. And if I was to ask you to sum up in one word what you admire most about James, what would you, what would you say? Well, it's what's happened recently with his his head injury, um, how he's adapted to that. Because for a number of years, the person that I 
got to know as a friend disappeared and people told him that he would never be the person he is again and I have to say having met him recently and got to know him much more now it was wonderful just to see him come back to the old James and I was lucky enough to go to his wedding uh, this summer uh, went to his stag do with some unbelievable alpha males it was the most amazing thing Carlsberg don't do Henleys but if they did this is what it would look like <laughs> and it was just after lockdown it was just brilliant to see him back to how he was before with his mates um Obviously, we had diametrically opposed views on a number of things, including in order to get to the level of excellence you need to get to, you have to completely commit yourself, whereas he would probably regard me as slightly half-hearted in that area. <laughs> um, but I have to say, I just enjoy his company. So welcome, James. I want to start, if I may, just asking you a little bit about your childhood. You're obviously a very driven and determined person, but what kind of boy were you when you were growing up it's tricky isn't it because your early memories you wonder whether they're memories or if they're stories that your parents have told about you to other people and those become artificial memories i think you know pretty normal upbringing in that sense is is me and my sister i don't know whether part of the you know where my parents parented was influenced by both of them being only children they were quite happy for me to be bored in the way that our kids today don't tolerate boredom at all. I think that has served me well in, in some of the things I've done. It's just the ability to be bored and I'm not saying imagination is my strong point, but just be able to entertain yourself. I guess I compare my childhood to my kids' childhood is that they ha would have no comprehension of waiting for a song to come round on the tape in the car and then when the hour's gone round for the song you want to hear your parents are then having an argument over who's reading the map wrong. And then they turn the volume down, it still plays, and it has to go round again. Um, you know, now they, you know, there is sat-nav, there is you know, Spotify, and everything's on demand. That When I was a kid, the telly would go off for two hours, so that, you know, the BBC shut down, so parents could put their kids to bed. Now there's Cartoon Network 24 hours a day. So it was a you know, pretty normal upbringing and I think what, what was really you know I was very lucky in that mum and dad were okay, you know dad worked full time mum was a physio but it was you know you would go to you know went to the Cubs went to swimming club went to football and I think that was one of the I, I think living in London with, with my kids and then you know I lived in grew up in, in Woking so provincial town Whereas there, there was working swimming club, working football club, working rugby club, scout. Whereas in London, a lot of the sports clubs don't have people from 8 to 80. They're effectively childcare. Mm -hmm. And there's no real progression through. And I think that was, that was a really good thing, just seeing people be active and do stuff of all ages. I think the big growing up I had to do was when I went from my middle school, I went to kids to grammar school. I was the only person from my school to go there. I had to make a whole load of new friends and I had to get two buses and a train to get there. And I think that came from my parents' approach to, to life in that my mum's dad won the pools. So I think he won sort of 1,500 pounds, but, but in the 50s, that was enough to buy a house with no mortgage. And so suddenly went from working class, very working class, to being able to see over the fence and not live week to week. And so my parents had their 
level changed in terms of, of what their expectations were. You know, my mum, neither of my parents went to, to university, but then their attitude changed to well, me and my sister that you know, they want us to go to university and to become a doctor you know, or a lawyer was their, was their aim. And so you know, making me do the 11 plus again to grammar school was their way of making that happen. And you know, going, looking forward a bit, it then meant when it came to advice for university, I was rowing, then I, I won the under 18 World Championship, had a scholarship to a couple of American universities. I was talking to dad about it and he goes, well, you know, UCLA is a long way away. Why don't you go to Reading so that mum could do your washing at the weekend? <laughs> and now I'm going, dad, I had four years free in Beverly Hills. What are you doing? <laughs> Reading, especially in the 90s, was not good. <laughs> so at least I'll be able to give my kids advice on that. Uh, look, as nice as Reading is, you go to Yale. <laughs> Where did your athletic prowess come from? Was it mum, dad, somewhere down your generation? Athletic prowess is hand-eye coordination, nowhere. So I think that's, you know, it's, it was self-selected. I think the reality is that most people, most boys in this country, unless they're playing football or a fail footballer, and that's self-selecting early. And I could play football as much as I wanted, but mindless enthusiasm only gets you so far. I wasn't naturally quick enough to play rugby I was pretty good at swimming so I think I always had heart and lung and I think what actually stood me in good stead was the ability to be bored which as I said my parents they're kind of having been only children they had to entertain themselves a lot so I think they did leave a lot of that up to to us and swimming is not the most exciting sport rowing certainly isn't the most exciting sport you know it's the ability to how long you can bang your head against the wall for um so it was it was kind of self-selecting like that and no, my parents are. You know, I'm six three. Dad's maybe what five eight. Mum's five eight. So they're not they're not super big really? at all. But what my mum has is she's. I I think stubbornness is a really good quality in a sports person. <laughs> it's not so good quality outside of that. But she is incredibly stubborn. And one of the memories that you know, she always said I had that streak in me that I can't remember. I had to go and have a see a GP or see someone where they they ask you where you live, what you do. And and Dad was at work with the car, so Mum and I had to walk. And I didn't want to go, apparently. This is about when you're five. Doctor, social worker, whatever, whoever it is, asking these questions in this development test. And Mum was obviously struggling with me and my, my sister, who was a couple of years younger than me. Official person asked me questions. I refused to say anything. And, and Mum did say I was unbribable. Or I've always been unbribable. So she, you know, it, I was embarrassing her then, and she's mortified and unbribable, so I just wouldn't say anything. And which I think I find strange that you know, at that age, when a grown-up figure is asking you these things, and I was going, "Nope," just did not say anything. And so I think maybe that that streak of that willful streak was there, and I think the ability to not be put off. And you know, Mum tells a story, so I we're having some having an extension or something done out of the back, and they dug down they put the you know put some stakes in it or something and I was carrying my sister across the garden and we fell down the foundations and for some reason we kind of landed well, her mum described it I was only you know young we'd kind of fallen in there but yet somehow managed to have all the spikes being either you know, we literally landed in it'd been impossible to, to land like that but we did so no damage done but I had to go to 
also for bang on the head. And then then I the next week I was I got a bike. My parents hadn't got me one with drop. I was, I was probably eight or something. Hadn't got me one with drop handlebars like a racing you know, Tour de France bike. So they got me one with straight bars. I was riding drop handlebars, but yet using the brakes underneath as the handlebars, which meant I had no brakes. So then I cycled into the back of a parked car and knocked my two front teeth out. So I had to go to hospital again. And then, and then I fell down the stairs a week later and broke my collarbone. And so I had to again. And then my mum was at home. She had a knock on the door. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't aware of what was going on. But the social worker had come round because she thought I was being abused because I'd been to hospital three times in three weeks with <laughs> falling down the foundations, smashed my teeth out and then broken my collarbone. It was not necessarily that, that I was accident prone, but it was after each of those things, I just got up and did something else, which I think maybe, you know, if you're asking why did I show a sporting streak, is actually that I didn't let anything stop me. Stop me. And if it, you know, a setback wasn't, you know, I, could, I'd, I would just go again. I think that's probably as important a skill as, as talent because talent will get you so far, but you've got to do the, the basics first. And then once everyone's done all that, then the talent, I think, does, does come into play. And you've got three children, so do you see any of that willfulness in them? I think the eldest, an eighteen-year-old son, he is—he is actually far too talented at too many things. So he, a lot of things come quite easily to him, and so he gets bored pretty quickly. So he's never really kind of stuck at anything. Like he wouldn't have no concept with how, why on earth I did a boring sport like rowing. He just you know, he tried it. He's like, yeah, yeah, but it's quite boring. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, fair <laughs> enough. It is, but you know, once you do it enough, you get to rest. Yeah, but there's so much more fun things to do. And the distractions he had at 18 are very different from what was available when I was 18. But so he has the the abilities. You know, he plays musical instruments. He you know, enjoys. He's far better dancer as anyone who works well strictly would show. He's far, but you know, he, a lot of things come. Yeah, he has a, a sort of lot more options in in that sense. Um, Kiki, who's thirteen, she is you know, incredibly competitive. She enjoys she enjoys sport, but she also enjoys pushing herself you know, in the classroom as well. But um, and that's where it actually, I think there is a real gender gap in terms of the opportunities for girls sport both my got two daughters both daughters swim Kiki loves netball which is brilliant but it's it's frustrating to go and watch netball there's a lot of whistling as far as I can tell <laughs> um and you think well just yeah um and then the probably the youngest one is most like me in that you know, physically she's you can tell she's she's the tallest in her class both boy or girl but she's also very, very athletic um so it'd be interesting if she finds what what she what really what she enjoys but it's it's difficult in terms of sticking at things that there's so much more available they can keep in touch with friends on a minute by minute basis that I didn't have a, with what with a phone yeah and my parents were just absolute Nazis with the phone bill so it didn't it was like <laughs> you know, it really wasn't it was a luxury item the phone it wasn't you know something to be used yeah I remember that in my own home actually the phone being in a very public place so you couldn't stay on it very long you know it'd be in the hall or something and and my parents had this annoying phone in their room but then also they had like just a listening thing so that if they're talking to say my 
grandparents that one could be on the phone the other one could hear the conversation but what that meant was that they could be upstairs and they could hear your conversation they didn't have to pick up the phone Ooh, so I was like this is dangerous I know so you're like are you there are you listening mum yeah. so there was no it was not even you know if you when you get a girlfriend it's like okay I'm not sure if your mum's listening so yeah. it kind of it really did not that my chat was ever that good but it did limit <laughs> what you were prepared to yeah, say exactly <laughs> look you're a really modest man james um however for the benefit of people listening who don't know i'm just going to briefly list some of the things you've achieved in your career and the reason i'm doing this is not not to make you squirm in your seat but because there's quite a few things i want to ask you about what you've done so you're a two-time olympic gold medalist and hold six world championship titles You've rowed the Atlantic with Ben Fogel in 2005-06. You completed the London Marathon in 2006 in a very competitive three hours. You finished second in the South Pole race in 2008. Later that same year, you competed in the European Triathlon Championships and ran the New York Marathon and completed a 125-mile non-stop marathon from, in a canoe from Devizes to Westminster. Um, in 2010, you became the highest-placed Britain ever in the 25-year history of the Marathon de Sable, finishing 12th. You completed the Yukon Arctic Ultra, finishing second in the 430-mile race across the frozen Atla- Alaskan countryside. And in 2019, you became the oldest competitor and oldest winner for Cambridge in the boat race aged 46. When you reflect on this long and impressive list of achievements, is there one overriding accomplishment that you cherish more than others? It's probably, you know, you mentioned going to two Olympics and and winning those. I think I got selected for two other Olympics I didn't go to. Um, First, I broke a shoulder, subbing into a mate's rugby game match, stupid sport. And the second, I got tonsillitis on the day of the opening ceremony in, in Atlanta. So I trained for four years and then couldn't race. And so lying in, you know, in the quarantine room and not having made it to the start line again, would have, it would be, you know, and then your early 20s, in debt, in the 90s, your mates are going out having loads of fun and you've wasted another you've got four years till the next one. I think making the decision to carry on then when friends parents, girlfriend, we were just saying, look, just get a job. You know, what are you doing? And, but I think having the commitment to, to say, no, look, I actually, A, I believe I can be good enough to win and I've got to make it to the start line. I think that carrying on when, it's easy to carry on when things are going really well. When they're not going well, I think is a, is a real testament to inner drive. And you, know, you look back on that situation of, of coping with a tough time as, as easier than... when things are going well. I think that's a a really special moment. I don't think I'd have won the the next Olympics if I hadn't hadn't suffered that that big downer. Um, And do you do you use do you use those feelings those really those feelings of disappointment to help motivate you in times when you're up against it? I think it's I think there's two ways that people motivate themselves. You can motivate yourself by uh, real positive thoughts about what it's, you know, that moment, what a moment of winning is going to be like. It may be that I'm, you know, a glass half empty bloke, but I would, it would motivate me more imagining sitting on the finish line having lost and just feeling how much that hurts rather than imagining what it'd be like sitting on the finish line having won. I, I think the 
for me, the, the fear and pain of losing was a bigger motivator factor than the excitement of winning. And has that always been the case for you? I think so. I think so. I think it really frustrated Bev, who's my ex-wife, is that I wouldn't celebrate success. I'd always be looking to move on to the next one. And she was saying, we never really enjoy the journey. And I was like, well, it's not much fun training all the time. <laughs> but, you know, it's... And then, so, well, then, but you don't enjoy... Then on the day, you're always looking forward to the what's next. But I think for me, it, if you're doing anything that anything you're committed to doing it at 90% or 100% it both take the same amount of time but the difference in the outcome will be huge so and I think I've always tried to make sure I get to the start line in a situation that there won't be any oh if only I'd done that when you finish that you've, you've ticked all that because it's doing it half-heartedly it still takes bloody ages out of your life mm. Um, mm. so you may as well just give it everything you talked about how dealing with boredom has probably helped you further along in your life later. Can you take us back to a particularly gruelling training session that sticks in your memory and just talk to us and describe to us what goes through your head when you're tired, when you're wet, you're hungry, everything hurts. I mean, what's going through your head? The good thing about you know, the training is that in a two-hour session, you know it's going to be two hours or it's going to be... you know. 30 kilometers or whatever it's going to be and you will get there eventually I think it's those I've actually always been able to cope with and it's not nice when it's you know you're you're rowing at altitude and you know if it's a properly cold day and you've got a bit of you know the the splash is freezing cold and it's freezing on the boat and yeah but that is you know it's gonna it's going to be over Uh, I think actually the hardest sessions were when we did 2000 meters test on the row machine we'd only do those a couple of a year and they use a selection test and you got to basically you know you're gonna have to you have to empty every jewel of energy out of your body and so in the in the build up to that the two hours before that when you're just getting ready for absolutely destroying yourself is is hard i mean and, and that that's actually similar to the olympics or, or world championship final is that the it wasn't the racing or the nerves of the racing that scared me it was what you've got to put your body through and and getting your head in the place where it's really it's really going to hurt it's not like a contact sport where you can take that out on someone else it's your body's going to constantly ask yourselves questions and uh, you know whether it be the row machine i would be worried if I got to, to that's 2,000 meter test takes six minutes, I would be worried if I got to a minute and a half and if I knew I could finish it, I hadn't gone off hard enough. So you got to get to a minute and a half and not be sure you're going to make it to the end. And that's where the, the battle with the head really comes. The cold, long, horrible sessions are fine in, in that they're cold, long and horrible, but you're not busting a gut in every way possible. Whereas you've got to go off hard enough to get your best time but you've got to go through halfway, not sure you're going to make it to the end. And that's not the nicest place to be, which is why you know a lot of people Don't. do stop on those tests. Yeah. Tell me about when you retired from being an Olympic athlete and what was going through your mind in terms of what you were going to be doing next. Obviously, I've reeled off a whole load of achievements that you have, but how did you figure out what you were going to do next? Well, I mean, it's... 
No, I actually kept a diary from 2000 to 2004 every day, just just to sort of describing how it felt, really, how how I felt on those days. Because it's, it's it, with the Olympics, it's a it's a four year cycle, and you you make the commitment when I stopped 2004 that you make you go to 2008, and it's it's four years, and we we train seven days a week for six weeks and have a day off, and, and so we only get three weeks off continuously after the World Championship. So. That was it. So you, you suddenly you know, you know you're committing all your weekends. It's going to impact on. And I was at that time I was newly married with a ten month old baby after the Olympics in Athens in 2004. And so you realise the toll that's going to have on them. Although I'd only won two two Olympics, I'd been selected for four. So it was going to, and if I did another Olympics, I was only ever going to be a rower. Um, so and you have a lot of opportunities after the games to do different stuff and all those were balanced out and it was balanced out with the race and we had in 2004 was that we had a an injury and we had our a new crew for the Olympics and we had our best race on the day of the final and we won by you know less than point one of a second so it was almost a, it was a perfect Olympic moment and think that that was a good time to to think about about stepping out and then the you know, I, I guess the fortunate situation I was in is that I I had six months where if I didn't want to work, I didn't have to. But then I really wish needed would need to work out what I was going to do. So it's like a footballer retires and, and never has to work really if they don't blow it. I had a bit of time to really work out what I wanted to do, and um, I guess the truth is I wasn't actually sure. What that, What was the diary? What was the diary you were keeping? So that the diary was, was just diary was him was just about. How I felt, how I was enjoying it, because the problem is that the, especially if you, you do well at the Olympics, that the the last six months before the Olympics, you know, you, you can see the games are coming. And then you race. If you do well, then you've got all the celebrations afterwards. Any point in those, you know, I guess eight to twelve months, you probably make a decision to carry on. Whereas it's the middle two years where the previous Olympics are you know, in the rearview mirror and you can't see them and the next one has yet to rise above the horizon and, and so you've got to keep motivated and I was I looked through it and in, you know, I was pretty there was just day after day where I just didn't want to do it I'd written down I just don't really want to do it today and I was having to motivate Matthew Pinson who's gone for his fourth Olympics in that time and I thought I was happy to motivate him and myself um, if he kept his diary he'd have probably said that I was really annoying him by just prodding him all the time but you know, we needed each other to win so um and so it just wasn't very happy and then also you think well actually how happy how good a you know husband are you boyfriend just kind of if, if that you write down that you're not very happy and I think well why am I committing myself to another four years of being not the most happy to do something I've already done so it was it was it wasn't it wasn't solely made on that but it's it was nice to have that perspective rather than the one where you get invited to fancy dinners and stuff and everyone's saying well done to you. That kind of only lasts so long before they really don't care about some bloke in light crew riding a rowing boat. What's the difference between being selfish and being driven? In many ways, not a lot. I think a lot. I think there is perception. I think if someone, if you're... Uh, your friends or a partner or mum, whatever, would say, "Can you do this this weekend? Can you do you know?" Um, and then you go, no, "I can't. I've got to go away. Um, we're going on training camp, or I can't. I've got a big training session tomorrow, or whatever it is." That the Olympics is a real get out of jail free card for 
it can be used for a real a genuine clash or it can also be used for I can't be asked to go and it's not <laughs> questioned because people can relate to and understand oh, he's tra- you know, you're training for the Olympics so therefore that has to come first where and so that is driven even though the motivation behind going could be I really don't want to go I can use the Olympics as an excuse whereas selfish is so you mentioned um, running across the Atlantic in the People don't really, well, when I was halfway across, I didn't really understand why I was doing it, but people don't really understand why you're doing it. And whereas you know, the BBC are making a documentary, there's a book written about it and we're sponsors. So actually, financially, it was paying better than the Olympics because the venture TV at that time was just starting out. But yet it was deemed far more selfish because people didn't really understand it in the same way they understand what the Olympics is. So a lot of it is about perception, whereas you know financially it was, it was good for us as a, a family and mentally I think it was really helpful for me to. It was a halfway house from retiring from elite sport to becoming a normal person, if that's the use of the right <laughs> word. It was a kind of it was a stepping stone back to normality, which may sound funny, but actually, it's uh, you know it was a very different different trip but did you go out looking for those kind of challenges or did they come to you no the, the um opportunities come after after the olympics and in, in terms of the you know when i was lucky enough to win my medals that not so many people won so there's a lot more opportunities and you do get invited to loads of parties i was at one and this guy comes up and says i'm doing a rowing race across the atlantic do you want to do it with me and it was ben fogel at the time was doing lots of daytime telly with animals obviously I was training so I didn't really watch it but that's <laughs> so and uh, I was like can you row and he goes no and I go no I don't want to do it and then <laughs> I didn't realize I didn't have a goal for the first time in a long time and you know 15 years probably and I really thought about it and I, I found up so like, okay yeah why not let's let's do it and and so I think it's and I think that was a a real moment in if I hadn't done that I probably would have I may have gone back a year later for the Beijing Olympics. Oh, really? Um, I think so. The, I think the, my coach was still the coach, and he wanted me to come back. And I was when I when I stopped in two thousand and four. I was still, you know, I'd won the pairs trials. I'd uh, was was Matthew and I were top of all the lists. So it wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't like I was hanging on, and no. you know, in a way, Steve Redgrave probably was for Sydney. I was, you know, he was obviously a, a bit older, but you know, I was, you know, I had another four years in me. Mm-hmm. And so I probably would have taken the, in, in one way, easier option of going back to doing what I knew. And this was actually, a, a, it was a really, you know, lucky to have the opportunity to do that. And how important is humility to you? And, and what does that mean to you? Humility, that's a good question. I think it's, to be honest, it's not something I've, I've ever really thought about because I don't see myself as, as that special I think if I'd been really good at football I'd play football the fact I wasn't means that you, you do other things and so if you've got no footballing skill no hand-eye coordination but yet have a good physiology you're going to end up in a sport like rowing if you want to do a sport because it, it kind of it's not coordination based it is the ability to tolerate boredom and a bit of pain and then that's it so I think I think I and in terms of humility or I try you know I think if there's any frustration is that people think 
yeah, I'm arrogant or get, get accused of being arrogant, uh, not because I am, but I'm probably quite shy. And then, so I don't really start conversations. So that shyness can come across as being aloof. And then if there's any recognition of that bloke's done that, being successful at that, but yet doesn't talk, then you're arrogant rather than a little bit shy. I want to just take you back to a particularly challenging time for you. And for those listeners who don't know, can you briefly describe what happened in 2010 during your attempt to cycle, row, run and swim from Los Angeles to New York? Well, yeah, I'd, I'd actually, you know, from having rode across the Atlantic, gone to the South Pole and done the Marathon of Salve, which did you know, a series of marathons in the desert, I'd always been filmed for BBC or Discovery Channel. And I got to the place where my hobby and what I really enjoyed doing was actually you know, starting to to become the source of income for the, for the family as well. And this is sort of, I was doing an adventure travelogue across the States. And uh, if you drive across America, you have a very different image of the, sky, the size and scale of the places if you, you, know, you fly from New York to LA. And then if you do it under your own steam, you have a much better mental map. And that's, you know, I, I generally love that way of traveling. So I started off in LA and then I cycled to Death Valley, which is you know, below sea level, it's really hot. Um, ran through there. And then I was going to cycle up to the up Route 66 to Chicago and row there and then, then cycle to New York. So that was the rough route. And then I was I was in Arizona and I got, uh, cycling early in the morning, I got hit by a, a fuel truck. So it was traveling at 60, 65 miles an hour, coming from behind me and this wing mirror hit the, the back of my head. I was wearing a helmet. And the next, well, the next thing I can remember, but... Um, I was in a hospital. I'd been in a coma for 10 days, two weeks. And the next thing I could re- remember was uh, uh, Dr. saying, right, this has happened. So I don't know how many, probably three weeks after I got knocked off, I was, the driver stopped, called an ambulance and the ambulance called the helicopter and then I got taken off. So, and then this is where, it becomes you know, far worse for for other people. Is that you know, when I was here, Bev, who's my wife, got the phone call. You've got to get to Arizona in the next 24 hours. We don't know what's going to happen. My parents got the same call, so they were getting on a plane, not knowing what news they were going to be greeted with when they got off the plane. And then you know, for the next 10 days, you know, I was in a coma. Bev found out she's pregnant with our our third child whilst I was in those 10 days. So you know, she was under you know, stress in every which way at that particular point, and and then I only have sort of what they call islands of memory after I came round. Of you can remember certain things, but you can't remember day to day. And I probably couldn't remember day to day for six weeks, eight weeks after coming out of hospital. So out, out of the coma, I didn't leave hospital for two months, and so you know, I got very little memory of the, the hospital, and it's how people around you are affected that Bev says that when she knew her life was never going to be the same again was that um, I'd come round and they, I was sitting in bed eating and they'd brought me food and I put the starter and the dessert onto the same plate with my main course and, and Bev said she asked the doctor said, well, why is he doing that and the doctor said they all do that and 
I'd gone from a normal sector of population to a special group of a brain injury because you know, a lot of people, I still have no smell or taste, but a lot of people after they've had a traumatic brain injury lose all sense of smell and taste and they're, part of the brain's going, well, you got, why have three dishes? I can have one. And then because you can't really taste, you just, it just makes sense. And so, but the, the, the phrase, they all do that was suddenly, uh, that's suddenly, okay, he's, he is different. And the reality is that everything was, I think from that point on was viewed through the prism of brain injury. So, you know, you asked earlier about different selfish and driven or a stubborn equality, that things that I may have been my characteristics before are then judged through a different, a different prism. I, in terms of, I saw one video that someone had taken in the hospital and I was sitting with my mum and they had flashcards with the, someone who was sort of trying to fire my brain up again, had a, picture of an apple and the word apple and I was 40 you know 38 I can't remember old, but you know, nearly 40 and my mum was sort of saying they sort of stroking me sitting next to me while someone's teaching me an apple and apple and I just this is, this, I don't want to see that and then you realise that what other people have gone through and it affects you know and then my my eldest was six at the time and the effect it's had on him you know I was at home a year and a half later and Habit had an epileptic seizure and he had to call the, the ambulance. I was, was alone with him. No, I didn't know I had epilepsy or they didn't know I had epilepsy. And suddenly, you know, my dad's 80 next year and he's still bulletproof to me. You know, and I'm 50. Whereas, you know, at the age of eight as he was then, he'd had to call the ambulance for his dad. And that's not, I mean, that's, that's not something that I would ever have wanted him to have to go through. And so he's sort of, you know, the, what should, who should be the consistent rock in his life is suddenly vulnerable in a way that he hadn't been before. And also, the, you know, I think the, some of the behavioural aspects after the accident, I wasn't as consistent either. And I think that's what kids need is, they may not always like what you say, but at least you're consistent about it. And I wasn't that either. So we lost a, a few years and it, you know, it took a, a long time to rebuild our, our relationship. So it's affects everything from you know friendships work colleagues people's perceptions of what you can can and can't do you get judged through a different a different lens so it's 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 horrible you've said in the past that you don't want to be defined by the accident i mean what do you mean by that well i think i guess it's anyone who you know whether it's business and you know it's you know if elon musk sells tesla then he would make ask a similar question. If a sportsman stops or you know, a rock star retires or an actor changes tack, the, the question you get asked is, what are you doing now? And I've, I've always been quite uncomfortable with that because nothing really, even though things you're doing are, you think are valuable, you enjoy and, and other people are interested in, it, in my head, it doesn't, nothing sounds quite as good as I'm just training for the Olympics. It, it kind of makes it, it gets out of any difficult that sort of conversation is just that you know what it means to you and people can understand it and it kind of sounds right but so that's one thing I think mo most people retire or change tack almost have to justify what they're doing or if they're insecure like I guess I was they have to feel like they justify it um, and then the after the accident the second uh, you, there's many great things about having a little bit of public profile you do have some amazingly good opportunities but the the downside is the second question after that would be, are you okay after the accident? And so I didn't want to have to answer that question. And I'd rather, 
but it's always going to be there. And I believe that I can make the... Well, to be honest, it's, it's difficult because the truck driver's in trouble and there's a court case against him. And because he was driving a, a fuel tank, it was effectively a big bomb. So, and he nearly you know, ended my life and left my kids without dad. And so I had to be... You know, lawyers say, you have to be careful in what you say. Not a day goes past that which hasn't happened, but you will improve and you will get better. And there is support out there and, you know, you don't give up. And... Tell us what you do now in order to get that message out to people. Um, you, you're, uh, you're the president, are you not, of Headway? Yeah, I'm vice president of, vice of president. Headway, which is the Brain Injury Association. And they're incredibly valuable. Came across them when they made contact with them, my parents, after the accident. Basically just to, to what to expect and to what changes would be there and an offer of help and understanding of what you know, life is like in the recovery of a, you know, either an acquired brain injury or a traumatic brain injury. And it's not a, a glamorous charity in that, in that respect. There's many people that Headway Helps are never going to get better. There are many people that, that can't live unaided. But the, the support and understanding and the research into finding solutions down the line is, is huge. And it's the same work I do with the Epilepsy Society. There's a real stigma surrounding epilepsy that is, is hugely unfair and it's a really limiting condition in some way. And the lack of understanding about it, I mean, there's a few examples, is that even now, 10 years on, 12 years on from the accident, done the boat race, I did the marathon a couple of years ago, two hours 40, and I go to a hotel and then... If I want to use a gym, they'll take terms and conditions. You've got epilepsy, they'll go, no, you can't use it. And you go, honestly, I'm, you know, I'm safe to, I'm okay, I'll, I'll be fine. And they go, yeah, but you can't. And then, so you realise that there's still that stigma, then there's quite right, you can't, if you have a seizure, you can't drive for a year because if you're driving, you know, basically you know, a killing machine in the car, you need to be able to show you're not going to have a seizure when driving. But I also couldn't, after a seizure, I couldn't swim with my kids for two years. Because if I had a seizure, I could take one of them down with me. And you realise the family holidays change because of that. You can't drive for a year, but you, you do get a disabled person's rail card to get help you get around, so which gives you cheap rail tickets. And this is where other people may find it more difficult than I did, and I found it difficult. But you, know, you, you buy a ticket for the train, and then the guard comes down and checks your ticket, Obviously, when you buy it, it comes the ticket comes stamped that you've got a rail card, and so and they'll they'll look at my ticket and they'll go, "Got your disabled rail card?" Like uh, really loud, and then people are looking, going, well, "He's clearly scamming. He looks absolutely fine." I'm not a super confident person, but I'm confident enough to cope with that. Whereas other people may not be, and you realise that there's all these little things that are just sort of dragging you back down again. So you felt you needed to change people's perceptions of you. So you decided to go back to university and enrolled at Cambridge to study human evolution and behavioural science. Knowing many of your fellow students weren't born when you won your Olympic title, how important was it that people took you for who you were at that point? I, I didn't walk in with any impression of, of myself. So it kind of it's so I didn't really view it in in that way. I think. I guess I wanted to make my I guess my fear going in was that I didn't want them to think I would be given a free ride 
because of what I'd done in the past. And so I'd want to have to earn my seat and people are only there for a limited amount of time. And so it's always annoying when they got really good rowers come in for a year course and take their one seat if they're an undergraduate. And yeah, okay, although it's, you know, if you're not good enough, you're not good enough. But it's like different being older and think, okay, he's given been given some favours because of his track record. But then you get there a month before term starts and you have these two tests on the row machine. And I hadn't done a test on the row machine for 15 years. Yes, I spent all summer trying to get fit, but I was right out the back door. I wasn't even in the top 16. So you have the, the eight for the blue boat and then the second eight is the reserve boat. I was, I was appalling. I hadn't done a flat out test for 15 years. And so... Were you worried at that point? Well, I knew I had a, a fair way to go. I wasn't arrogant enough to think I was going to come in ahead of some of the guys who'd you know, just come back from rowing in the Rio Olympics. But I was surprised I was that bad. But I also knew that I would, you know, it's the one thing you can control, you would get better. But it did have served the purpose that I may have come in with a reputation, but that was quickly out the door. That I did, yeah, they were like, okay, right, he's fine. It's going to be a fair battle. So that was... That was almost, that was quite quickly removed. I managed to remove that myself in the first week. <laughs> but interestingly, you did, you did train before you went to Cambridge. I mean, you, you said earlier that, you know, obviously the academics were going to be a challenge as well, having not been in kind of formal education for many years. Did you prepare for that at all or did you just... I did, but for the academics, I had the background reading and I, you know, I got myself up to, up to speed with that. And I, I, you know, the mileage, you know, I'd, I'd run really, you know, if the if the test for the for the boat race had been to run a marathon, I'd have rather won. Yeah. But the reality is that you have to, you know, lactic acid has to become your friend again. I spent 15 years of, uh, avoiding it, so I had to reacquaint myself with that, which was not much fun. In terms of studying, it was firstly the, the subjects really interested me, really did, and it still does. What is fascinating about Cambridge and I think it's, it's the same for an undergraduate as a postgraduate is if you don't want to turn up to anything you don't have to it is and but yet you are going to get judged on what you hand in and then it's also finding out when stuff happens there was no internet when I was first at university and um so everything you know, first lecture thing it goes well right sign up to doodle or something I and I had no idea what it was I couldn't find this electronic diary thing that everyone was talking about so then that, you don't know where you're supposed to be and when so then you find out you're a bit behind and stuff and then their hands are going up to correct the lecturer on his handout and I still hadn't found the handout and I was just like this is not good this is yeah and so it's that before I could even struggle academically I had to work out where I was supposed to be the one thing that I could bring to the rowing side of things was being streetwise right. and believing I knew how good I could be and I knew how good they could be, but they didn't know how good they could be. Right. And so part of it was getting them to believe how good they could be and make the right decision and not be so naive about certain things. Yeah, they're very clever, but they're naive 18, 19, 20 year olds. I felt confident if I could get myself physically up to a level, I'd be able to outsmart, more, outsmart them and outrace them into the boat. Of course, it was at Cambridge you met lovely Jordan, your now wife. At that point, had you been selected for the boat? Well, talk me through that period of time, because obviously you were there for a while. Well, I met Jordan, actually. I met Jordan on the first day of, to be honest, it was, you know, in terms of Bev and I, it was, it was over. We made the decision when I got there that when we sat down and told the kids and you know, went through all that, that you know, we weren't teaching them about a good relationship at all, that in terms of... 
of the kids of, of this isn't what we want to do. We won't make each other happy. And uh, it was it was incredible. It was incredibly hard. I, I did really someone who'd been there, and I probably hadn't taken as much on myself. But and I was I was definitely I was really really struggled. It was a really dark time in terms of of meeting Jordan, which is, you know, is a very separate thing. But we had the other sort of matriculation. You have your first day, and then he's like, "We well, use a photo." And on the first day, her surname was is Connell or mine's Cranell. Um so we sat next to each other and so she had to put up with my chat and um and it was it was you asked about the rowers you know, coming in with the reputation that you know, she's born raised in Manhattan so had no knowledge of rowing which was actually really refreshing to to talk to on that level and and it was you know, it was just a very and we're both at Pete's house it's a very small college and you know, it was just it was just very refreshing to have someone different to talk to and who had no preconception of of who I was because I was still dealing with people who pre-accident or post-accident know me before and and was always making the comparison which she took me as she saw me she did find it strange that people came up and wanting you know, a photo to talk about rowing she was like do you row and I you know, did a bit but that's you know I didn't really go any more than that um <laughs> <laughs> this is it's a story she'll find, you know, in later, you know, in, the, in the next term that we're in. There's only so many places out in Cambridge. Um, it's basically, you know, university town surrounded by farmland. And uh, we're at Weatherspoons. <laughs> and um, there was a hen night in there. And this girl was pretty drunk. And then, so I was chatting to Jordan. And these, these two girls come up. Do you know who he is? And she was like, oh, it's just, it's just, it's just. no, no, no. He's an asset to the United Kingdom. I was like, <laughs> I wish she had really no, 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 didn't know how to take that. I was like, it's brilliant. This never happens. It's a shame it happened in Weatherspoons, but I'll take it. And, and so, yeah, so it was that. She's kind of, it's, she finds it incredible. I don't know, in, you know, she in Manhattan that there'd be, she grew up in the Upper East Side, and so then. Celebrities don't get bothered there in the same way that they, they do here. So they will be, you know, they'll just wander around. Everyone's busy doing other stuff. You say that less than a, a month before the boat race, you got the news that you made the boat. Can you describe that moment for for our listeners? So I also broke a rib in, I broke a rib in October. I didn't really get back in the boat until January. The boat race is in April. So you know, I had to train on my own. On a, on a bike, which to be honest, it helped me get through academically because we train half an hour outside Cambridge, so you lose a lot of training time or travel time. So I, I kind of gained that, that I could actually put some work in, but it would did mean that I only got back in the boat very late and I hadn't rode for 15 years. So the actual muscle memory is there, but these guys you know just rode differently from from. You know, the way I used to and you know, my flexibility hadn't improved in 15 years so I was on the I knew that the later the later I could leave the final selection race we had to do the better but also the coach needed to build the boat and be fair to everyone else and I'm sure he thought I'd be an asset on the day but he wasn't going to give me a seat and it was damn right he wasn't going to give me a seat I wouldn't have expected him to or wanted him to but he left it late and I remember actually getting asked, really, when I applied, and then I, got, I had a place, sorry, and then met one of the sort of old patriarchs of the Cambridge Boat Club, and he said, if if you get asked to row in Goldie, which is the reserve boat, would you do it? 
And and I said yes, just thinking no, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't. I'll be in the blue boat. That's before we started, and realised that I may end up in Goldie. A month before the race, having trained with the guys for eight months, I would have raced in the reserve boat. It's not the way I would want my career to end to be in the reserve boat for the blue boat. But having shared time with those guys, um, I bought into it, and I think making the blue boat actually was was down to I got back into the into rowing after my rib injury, and I spent a lot of time in rowing in Goldie. The blue boat were going out and I was in the reserve boat as I was waiting my chance to prove myself. And part of being in the reserve boat is your, or well, I made it our mission when I was in there, was to off the blue boat and beat them, you know, and, and just push them in a way that they weren't expected to. They should, well, we should be fast on these guys. And then you know, I got my chance to to have what they call seat race where they swap you in and out and work out which goes faster or not. And then I was sort of the seventh or eighth person in so when Rob sat down and said right you're in for now it felt exactly the same as when Jürgen Grobler said you're in the Cotswolds 4 because I committed everything I'd taken a risk I just got academically up to speed and you know I just made the crew and I, and I think it was a kind of in terms of what it meant it, you know, it meant everything you take a risk in that within a month of being at Cambridge I was going to fail my course and not make the blue boat. And so to turn it around that much and your marriage falls apart as well, that that's you know, it's a, to to put all those things back together was a real lesson to me that actually don't be afraid to take a risk. Don't be afraid to take control of where you where you want to go. And if you you know, if you believe yourself, back yourself, then you can do it. And you know, the reason I made the boat was because I contacted the physiologist that we work with in the rowing team up to the Olympics in 2000, 2004. And I got him, he'd, he'd subsequently gone on work with British Cycling and then did a lot of work with Jess Ennis, that, to set me a programme that took into account I was 40, not 20. And so I did a lot of that training to be more dynamic and to you know, fire up some of the muscles that had gone. Just gave me a little bit of the top end that was lacking when I when I needed it. Rob, the chief coach of Cambridge, wasn't delighted that I was doing a different, you know, I would go away and, do something different that you know the guys are doing 90 minutes steady state sessions and I'm doing on the bike yeah they're doing that on the you know, on the row machine they're doing you know an hour and a half and I'm on the behind them on the bike I'm doing 28 second flat flat out pieces with three minutes doing nothing and they're like this is really unfair why is he doing eight seconds and I thought if I'm going to fail it's got to be on my terms and that's I think is a, a good approach to have in life afterwards that takes some going, actually, as a coach, doesn't it, to, to, to be able to incorporate those two very different types of training and, and motivationally for the team and all that perception piece and being treated, you know, or being treated differently or... Yeah, I mean, it, it's, they knew that the trialling would be the same. Yeah. So I would, it, yeah. I, I, I would have to do that trial on that day. And make it count, so... And then yeah. if I got there, but that what would the, have annoyed them more would be if I you know, had gone AWOL for the week before. So if I could have been resting up for the race yes, rather than yes. they, everyone trains through it. But you won that boat race by one second. Yes. Yeah, we should have won by more. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So given the <laughs> the journey you'd been on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a truly amazing day. And 
I think we all think we could have raced a bit better, but it's it's it is the one it is the most binary race I've ever done because there is no is first or last, and this thing called the captain's room at the boathouse in Cambridge, the Goldie Boathouse, where you do your land training, is room the captain's room. And there's a plaque which is you know maybe twelve inches by six inches with the, with all the name with your so every crew has one. We're going back. Our boat was 165th boat race out of what our one was. So there's 165 plaques there. And it has the crew's names of the crew, the year, and then just says one lost. So it's not and, and and that's that's it. And so it is very binary like that. And that's one second, point one of a second, eight seconds. Yeah, you know, it is really it is really interesting how that how that works. And you know, it's it's more yeah, that's probably why it stood the set of time. And then you handed in your theses nine years to the day that you were put into a coma by the fuel mm. truck, which is, when I read that, I was like, so was that something that you wanted to do? Well, th- that was the deadline day. It was, oh, it was the, just uh, yeah. a deadline no, I didn't, day. I didn't, I didn't it wasn't wait. engineered. I didn't, I didn't, and I didn't hand it in early either. <laughs> no, <laughs> it, 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 was, it was serendipitous fate, whatever it was. It was, and, you know, I'm genuinely more proud of, of that than than the boat race in terms of you know I had to so to do the thesis we had to average 60% throughout the first two terms in uh, to be able to do the thesis I got 50 I had 59.5% average and they let me they let me through to do it so but I had to get had to make up the half percent (laughs) but so yes I I, and then I got 62% average I yeah I use a Japanese just in time method, I think, of, of doing it. I was and but I had to fight all the way and that's I'm incredibly proud of it, thankful to have the opportunity and it is a truly magical place to study. So James, thank you so much. You've been it's been really lovely hearing you share some of your stories. What does a good day look like for you now? See, that's what are you doing now? So that's the question that I think the best thing is actually doing something or, or definitely learning something, you know, the ability to experience new stuff. And so, you know, recently applied to be on the board of Sport England, which is the grassroots funding of a sport rather than the, overcoming the barriers rather than the elite end. So that makes sure everyone in the UK has as much access to physical activity as possible. In that sense, it's lived in a certain corridor of, of my life. And then you, you have your awareness of other people's corridors or how they live is actually really almost embarrassingly limited. So that's bit so those sorts of days are, I think are really good where you're going, okay, right, okay, this is how these things work and how you fit into it. And I think in terms of if there is a, a legacy of of sport, for me the the bigger legacy is to make sure that, that people can can live active and healthy lives and make the most of their lives and their kids' lives and their grandkids' lives. And and that's kind of the the, the way I'd like to see the work that I do in the public health arena, that's the kind of the way I would, I would like to see it go. And I would say it's still a work in progress to make that <laughs> that happen. But I think it, I think in terms of it being a good day, it's it'd be a bad day if I wake up and I just think I'm going to be stuck in Groundhog Day again. And before, before we finish, I, I would like to encourage our guests to sort of pay it forward. I don't know if you ever saw that film. Just to gift you know, three life lessons, you know, you've experienced so much and we've barely scratched the surface. But if you were to, so things you've learned and the experiences that you've had that 
just might be of use to others out there. What what would those three things be? I would say I would say the first thing is to take control of where you want to go. Don't just assume it's going to happen. So that would be one. I would say don't be afraid to ask for help and open up. And these are all very things I would not have said you know 15 years ago. I'd say you know, take control of where you want to go. Don't be afraid to to ask for help. And this isn't my advice, this is, what, this is what my coach said to me. And, and it kind of more rings true now than it did when he said it. It says, in order to jump high, you have to bend low. And I think that you know, looking back through my life is that if you have a setback, actually, it's when you've seen that side of things, you realise, okay, it gives you a, a better grounding than sometimes you, know, you respond better from a setback than, than everything going your way all the time. On behalf of all those who've been listening, thank you to our brilliant mind, James Cracknell. And if you want more information about James and his achievements, please do visit the HDL website and search for Brilliant Minds in Conversation, where you can hear this podcast and, and read Harvey's first-hand account of the story behind how we came to meet and work with James Cracknell. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.